I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Today's guest is a dear friend and a happiness ally. She is someone I admire deeply and view with tremendous respect, Michelle Gielen. Michelle is the best-selling author of Broadcasting Happiness. She was named one of the top 10 authors on resilience by Harvard Business Review. She's also an executive producer of The Happiness Advantage on PBS and a featured professor in Oprah's Happiness course. Her work focuses on the link between happiness and success and is highly research-based and driven. Now, past the formal introductions, I just should say, I admire the perspective that Michelle brings to happiness so much because of the way she presents it and the way she lives it and the way she spreads her message. Michelle's husband, Sean Acor, is one of my top happiness heroes. And so I can easily say that Michelle and her family are two of my favorite people in the world. I can't tell you how happy I am to see you today. It's been a long time. We haven't met for almost a year now. And I'm so grateful that you're here, Michelle. Thank you. Oh, I'm so happy to be with you. Thank you so much for inviting me on this. And I really view this as spending time with a friend. So thank you. It really is always very, very eye-opening for me. Every time I hear you speak or sit in a place where you're discussing something over a dinner table or whatever, because I have the tendency to try and be the best speaker in every event. It's, it's good for business if you think about it, but also makes the, the audience quite happy, I hope. Unless you are one of the speakers, which then I sort of admit defeat at the beginning of the event and go like, okay, I'm going to have to be second today because you really, really look at things from a very scientific point of view, from a very research-driven point of view, but also in a way that I believe is very practical, very like super down to earth. And, you know, I hear you speak and I go like, yeah, I could have thought about that. I didn't. But I could have thought about that, right? It just makes a ton of sense. Now, I want to start with that notion, which I think is at the core of everything you talk about, of rational optimism. Because we are going through a time where I think it's difficult to be optimistic. So the world has been shaken so much that it's starting to become difficult. Is that possible at all nowadays to be optimistic? Sometimes if you suggest it, people are not on board with that idea. But I think that when that happens, it's because they have a misunderstanding of what optimism really is. So long, optimism has been talked about in terms of Pollyanna, rose-colored glasses, ignoring reality, right? Just skipping along and forgetting what's happening in the world and the suffering. Meanwhile, what the way we look at it in the research is optimism is the expectation of good things to happen. And it's the belief that your behavior matters, especially in the face of challenges. So someone who is rationally optimistic is taking a realistic assessment of the present moment. They really understand what's happening in the world, in the markets, in their families. And in the midst of the challenges that they might be experiencing, they believe that if they put one foot in front of the other, if they take smart, positive actions towards 
overcoming this challenge, then good things can happen as a result of that effort. And so when we start defining it that way, rational optimism sounds like something that all of us not only can buy into, but also what we see is ultimately an advantage in every aspect of your life. When you're more rationally optimistic, you make better decisions at work, you make more money over the course of your career. For your family, your relationships are better, your energy levels are higher. It's every single business, educational, and health outcome that we know how to track. All of that improves. I don't doubt the value of optimism at all, but I don't know if it's possible because some of us would look at life around us and go like, ah, wars and politicians and economic crisis and now disease. And how can you find the positives in all of this? How can you expect an optimistic future in that case? Yeah, absolutely. So the way I originally came to understanding more about the research behind rational optimism was as a result of my experiences as a journalist. And so anyone who knows anything about media knows that that is a world steeped in negativity, unfortunately. I ascended in my career very quickly from local news here in the United States to a national position. I worked at CBS News. And When I got there, I realized that like every other news organization, we were reporting constant negativity. And we were very little at the time talking about the solutions that you can take in the face of those challenges. So I ended up leaving CBS. I went to get a master's in positive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. And what I wanted to do was understand from a scientific perspective, how do you talk about all those challenges in the world, right? The suffering, the the inequality, all of those things, but in a way that doesn't leave us feeling what many of us feel when we watch the news, which is depressed, depleted, stuck, not wanting to take any action, right? Instead, it leaves us feeling empowered, energized, and ready to come up with a plan to overcome those challenges. There's absolutely a science to it, and at the core is cultivating that rational optimism. So we can still focus on what's happening and what's broken in our world, but we just do it with a different kind of mindset that allows us to then create the reality that we are after. So I'm an avid fan, as you know, of your work. So I follow everything that you ever release everywhere. And one of the staggering statistics that you shared once was the idea that three minutes of negative news in the morning would have a devastating impact on our state of unhappiness. I think you said 27% more likely to be unhappy during the day. Yes. But we have to suffer three minutes of news every morning, can't we? (laughs) (laughs) What would you do? Would you live without it? It's really hard sometimes to feel as if we can stay informed without getting that negativity dose. So in the study that we did, we exposed people to three minutes of negative news in the morning. And what we found is that you had a 27% higher likelihood of having a bad day. And we talked these people and we were testing them six to eight hours later. So they were still feeling the effects later on. It is possible to stay informed without suffering those negative consequences. The key is, I think, if you want to redo how you do the news, is I don't think it's good to bombard our brain first thing in the morning with all that negativity. We have to sort of shore up our positive resources, fill our brain with good stuff before we open our brain up to this negative information. So what that means is practically, what do you do when your first half hour or hour of your day? Are you rolling over and checking the headlines from your phone? Or are you meditating, going on a walk, spending time with your children around the breakfast table, being conscious about how we spend our time can have a huge impact on the rest of our day. And then when we do 
go online to get the news. I think going online is the best way because you can skip headlines that seem too sensational. Yeah. And then really look for stories that are solutions focused. I've partnered up since my time at CBS with an organization called the Solutions Journalism Network. And it's fantastic. Not only is it a resource for journalists, but I think just for the general public, it's an amazing organization. And what they advocate is focusing on your brain on not just the problems, let's say in your community, but the things that are being done to solve those challenges. So perhaps if there's something going on in your community, you can find a story of people in another community that have already addressed this challenge. You're feeding your brain solutions. So when we did a study looking at solutions-focused journalism, where we exposed one group of people to problems and then one group of people to problems and potential or actual solutions, the people in that experimental condition were 20% better on creative problem solving on subsequent unrelated tasks. So it's like the work they were doing later on in the day, they were smarter and better at it because they had just thought about those solutions and got their brain in a different mindset. The news can ultimately be an incredible source of energy if we just look for those longer format articles that show us a path forward, even if we're not actually going to participate in solving that challenge ourselves. This is very interesting. So if an article is showing us the challenges, not hiding it, talking about the negative, but talking also about the positive side, like what is possible? What can we do that would improve our state of happiness? It would improve our optimism in general. It would improve our ability to solve other problems in our life. And and I actually, from my days at Google, and I think you also shared that uh, statistic at our talk at Google, that it's good for advertising. So those agencies actually would do better because people who have been bombarded with bad news don't want to buy products, right? So overall, it seems like reasonable to actually complement the argument of the negative news with a little bit of solutions, but that's not normally what happens, is it? No, you really have to search out those news organizations or journalists that are committed to putting out solutions journalism. And that puts a lot of onus on us as news consumers. It, it takes legwork, but once we find those places and we can find those articles, I think ultimately we're just getting a different picture of reality. And it, it makes me want to be a much more engaged citizen in my community, in my world, if I feel like my behavior actually makes a difference. So let's talk about the personal side of this. I know your work impacts organizations and corporates and news media and so on and so forth. As a person, how did you handle the last couple of months? Did you wake up in the morning and looked at the news? And then what did you do more than the rest of us? to feel positive, to feel optimistic, to feel rationally optimistic? Well, let's see. I think the past couple months have been such a beautiful learning opportunity for our oh, family. Wow. Okay. <laughs> we were go, go, go all the time, jumping on planes. As you mentioned, my husband's also a happiness researcher. And between the two of us, I mean, we must give more than 100 talks a year. Most of the time, we just go, each of us, on our own for 24-hour trips. But sometimes we take the family. So it's pretty busy. Yeah. And then everything came to a grinding halt. Yeah, it took a few weeks to kind of get in a new groove. But what we started to see rather quickly was that a lot of the things that were sort of our go-to distractions, we didn't need. And there was so much pleasure to be gained just by being together as a family, being quieter, being slower. Like I love the name of your podcast. It's perfect, right? Just slowing <laughs> down. And then 
being more mindful about what we're now is the stages to be more mindful about what we're going to add back in as those opportunities arise. So Sean and you are two of my favorite happiness experts. I adore both of you. Like it's really, really incredible how you got together. And I can imagine that your household is not the normal one. (laughs) Are you willing to share a little bit what happens when two gurus are living in the same household? Okay, well, first of all, I will say that we are not happy all the time. I wanted to ask you that. (laughs) Yeah, that would be a lot of pressure. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So, yeah, we've talked about this a lot around the dinner table about how we live the research and how we try to and all this stuff. Basically, I think now the key for us is we know that when we're not in our place of happiness or peace, we are able to recognize it more quickly and easily, right? We both, we're, we're normal people. We get stressed, we get annoyed at each other, we're, we feel frazzled about the kids. How can you do that? You don't have the right to be annoyed with each other. None of you is annoying. It's unacceptable. This is a no-no. Um, I think the difference now than maybe a decade ago when I first started researching all of this is that I now know a lot of the research-based tools that we can use. And so more quickly, we get to those tools and then we hopefully get back to a place of peace. And would you have an actual active conversation like saying, Sean, when you spoke about positive psychology, you said this, your behavior is contradicting that? Yeah. Like sometimes we'll be like, go do your gratitudes. (laughs) You know, we try to infuse it in our days so it's not just a go-to when we're not feeling good, but it's something that we're constantly doing even when we're feeling good. So the first thing we did when all this quarantine stuff happened was we have a son. He's six years old. He was in kindergarten, just finished. And so we wanted to keep up school. So we launched Hogwarts Academy here at home. <laughs> wow. John and I were Professor Hufflepuff and Professor Gryffindor, and we taught him defense against the dark arts. And one of the things that we wanted to do was have a morning routine to kick off school. So we did a couple minutes of meditation, we did gratitudes, and then we also said our prayers or the idea was to set an intention for the day. And the gratitude practice was far and away the favorite of the three Uh because our son got to participate. We have a notebook now full of three new and unique things each of us are grateful for each day. And then after the first we wanted to go back and savor the good stuff from the day before. So what we do is we'd read the gratitudes from the day before. We'd pick out our favorite one. So just choose from the nine. And then we'd put it on a piece of paper and then crumple up the piece of paper and throw it in a bowl. So now we have a gratitude jar in the middle of our man. Yeah. And it's just been so much fun. So then Sean or I get stressed about something. One of us might point to the jar and say, Hey, Take we'll a pick look one at of that. those. <laughs> How can you be that stressed when we have that much to do? That is a wonderful practice, truly a wonderful practice. And actually, it's visible. So you can see it with your own eyes that there are so many crumbled balls of gratitude in there. Yeah. That's amazing. I am buying myself a jar for that absolutely right now. I think this is a great idea. I want to stay on the personal side. Definitely want to cover broadcasting happiness and the whole idea very heavily. But I want to stay on the personal side for a minute. You're a computer engineer. Are you hiding that from everyone? (laughs) You're a programmer, right? Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. And then you go and say, no, no, hold on, hold on. I don't like that. I'm going to be a media sensation of some sort. And then you end up saying, no, 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 wrong, wrong. I want to go and do a master's in positive psychology. And then you write about happiness and you spread the concept of happiness. 
this probably was one of the areas that you least discuss in public, but it's really, really interesting for me knowing you because a lot of people are unhappy because they really never live their dreams. Now, it's quite brave because you are quite good at what you do at every one of those stages, but yet you made a massive change. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, well, I, I loved programming. I loved being a computer engineer. I did software development, but the fact that I sat behind a computer basically working by myself for 10, 12 hours a day, just didn't seem like something I wanted in the long run. I'm very extroverted most times. I'm sort of an ambivert, but extroverted in many cases. And I wanted to be talking with people. So a friend of mine sold me on this idea of being a journalist, which was she was one at the time, because you get to talk to people, hear their stories, interesting people all the time. I think that sounds like a great idea. I'll try it out. I never had an idea that I would get to New York, but that was my dream. And then I think after that, what I ended up doing was merging both worlds. And now as a researcher, I can look at communication and how we communicate to other people. I do have to say in the midst of all of those leaps, I just had this belief that things would work out. I didn't know exactly how they were going to work out. I didn't get wedded to a particular outcome, but I had sort of a general sense of what I wanted. And then I took the leap. I mean, part of it might've been because I was young and, you know, I just, (laughs) I didn't know me better. So I was like, let's give it a shot. But thankfully everything did work out. And then I did work very hard at every turn to accomplish the things that I was looking to do. One of the things I normally say is that you're more likely to be successful at something that you're enjoying than to work at the job that you don't believe in, right? And for most of us, we sort of prioritize the stability, the security, the safety of, oh, I know, I'm, I'm learning this job, I have an income, over the risk of, no, no, hold on, this is not exactly what I love. But you say you had that belief in you that things will work out. Do you believe that this is valid for everyone? Because I believe that in everyone's 20s, I'm not saying change jobs every two weeks or go and spend two of the most important years of your life post-university on a beach somewhere. I'm asking everyone to work hard, but should people take that risk? Should we jump? I believe in jumping because it's worked for me. I also believe in being mindful about taking calculated risks. Give you an example. When I was working as a software developer, I decided to move to California because there was an advertisement on a website of a news organization that they were looking for a new anchor and reporter. Mm-hmm. And where I didn't want to commit to a contract, a new contract as a developer, I got a job as a receptionist at a software company just to pay the bills, which was kind of ironic and funny. Right. Let's take that. <laughs> and I applied for this job as a reporter. But I didn't just send in this tape and resume and cover letter and hope everything would work out. I called the woman who was the head of HR every single week for like two months. And she kept saying to me, she was really nice. She was very, very nice. And she said, Michelle, I have a stack of 6,000 tapes in my office right now of all these other people that are trying for the same job. I haven't gotten to yours yet. And I said, okay, but is it okay if I call you back next week? And she said, yeah, absolutely. Anyway, it turned out that finally, at one point, I was not going to get off the phone with her unless I tried for an interview. And if she said no, I'd never bother her again. But I basically invited myself in for my own interview. And she said, yes. And then we had a wonderful conversation. It also turned out it was the same day. 
that they had an, a special episode that they were taping and they happened to be taping on the same studio lot that I already had security clearance for. They had a studio audience, I put myself in the middle of it. When people could ask questions, I raised my hand and I asked the first question. And then a producer came down and said, you know, you would actually do really well here. I think you'd be great on TV. I said, it's so great you're saying this because I just... <laughs> exactly the right moment. Can you say that to her? <laughs> I think in those moments, that was a mixture of hard work and persistence and all that. But I think there was also something else going on there that whether you believe in God or not or the universe, but like something smiling down on me that put me in the right spot and then allowed me to be seen by the right people. And I felt that spirit in a few moments in my life and getting that job at CBS, I felt that exact spirit and then getting into the master's program. And I think it's just when it's just meant to be, but if you don't take that leap in the first place or put yourself out there, you'll never know if those things can happen. That is so profound. This covers it from so many angles. And by the way, I, I believe in God. I say that publicly. I call him the designer. And you know, I don't ask everyone else to believe in a God, but I definitely want people to believe in some sort of a blueprint that wants to favor people who put in the effort, to favor people who are taking chances. Right. This is basically, I believe, part of the design. Just like gravity pulls things downwards or in the direction of gravity, also people who put in effort, who are optimistic, who are out there trying, who speak to the HR positively and nicely several times, will probably have a better chance. It's just the way physics work. Right. And I think the idea, I mean, I think you bring it in such a beautiful way, saying, I wanted to take the leap, but I also put in the effort and I was helped. So all of this comes together somehow to deliver, I would probably say, and if you decide, which I hope you don't, to leave happiness and positive psychology and now decide to become a chef, I think you'll do the same. You'll probably end up being a very good chef, not because you're born talented as a chef. Don't play rugby because you probably won't well there, but, but you know, but if you, if you decide to be a chef, I think you'll do the same. I think that mentality of positively attempting to reach somewhere is what people need to learn, right? I'm very good at chicken fingers. Very good. <laughs> okay. That won't take you far. So <laughs> let's go to the core topic because I think it would be a shame if our listeners don't listen to your view on this. So you say that there are things that we tell ourselves and others are much more important than everything we hear in the news and the impact that everything externally has on us, right? That our state of happiness is all about broadcasting happiness from ourselves to ourselves and ourselves to others. And you're a living example of that. It's like, I don't mean to say that in a strange way, but you're jumping up and down on the stage. You're just bubbling with excitement when you're talking to people. So you live that. But give us the science behind it. What does that mean? I mean, if life is not good, what does broadcasting a happy state? What difference does that make? There are two sources of information that are way more predictive over your health and happiness than the news you get or the people around you and what they're saying. It's what you say to yourself and what you say back to other people. I have now looked at the research from decades of neuroscience and positive psychology, communication. What we find is that when a challenge strikes, or even in the good times, the way you think about it, what you tell yourself about it, and then what you tell other people 
can have a massive impact on how successful you're going to be, how much you accomplish, how deep your relationships are. So I look at those small tweaks or the small things that you can do to train your brain to speak differently about your reality in a way that actually changes your life in a quantifiable way. So, you know, I find that when you're more rationally optimistic, when you're more positive, when you speak in a more resilient way, you have enjoy things like 31% higher levels of productive energy, 23% lower levels of the negative effects of stress, like headaches, backaches, and fatigue. Sales professionals who are optimistic outsell their pessimistic counterparts by 37%. That's because they have this drumbeat positivity, right? When they get on the phone with clients and when potential clients say no to them, they know what to say to themselves. So they actually feel empowered to get back on the phone and try again. Wow. This research to me, I think this is where it's at. It's so fascinating because what it shows us is that we have so much more control over our mindset and our reality than we often give ourselves credit for. And so when we take hold of that and we start saying, you know what, when a challenge strikes, I'm going to come up with a game plan quickly, or I'm going to have a meaningful conversation with a friend to figure out what I can do. If you take chances and come up with plans and then enact them, it's actually incredibly fruitful for every aspect of your life. That is so empowering. So what I tell myself, it doesn't have to be what others tell me. It doesn't have to be fully verified. Does it have to be? I mean, can I tell myself a little bit of encouragement as well? Does that work? Yeah. But what I love is that it's so important to recognize we can have multiple competing realities at any given time. I have in in my book, this idea called fact checking. It's where you fact check a story that's causing you stress or anxiety. And basically what you do is you come up with one line that explains what this stress is, right? I'm never going to finish this project in time. I feel so stressed. And then you write down four or five facts that prove why you're right. So I'm exhausted. No one can help me. I have my son's recital later this week. That's all very true stuff in your world. But then you push your brain to see successes, skins, skills, wins, resources, all of these elements of your reality that are equally true but together paint a different picture. You know what? Those guys can't help me, but two other colleagues could help me write this proposal. Oh, speaking of proposal, I've got a template on my computer. I can use that as a jumping off point. Actually, add up the number of hours between nine and six between now and the deadline. I've got more than 20 hours I could devote to this project, right? Equally true facts, but we're just focusing our brain on those and creating this new reality. One feels paralyzing one feels empowering. And so as much as I possibly can, I try to get my brain to focus on that second set of facts. The reason I I started to see fact checking as a possibility, besides my days in media, is because when I was in my mid-20s, I experienced a year-long bout with depression. And it was in the midst of that year that I found two things that worked really well for me. I got myself to the gym. I almost fell off the treadmill that first day, right? And the other thing was, every time I had an anxious or stressful thought, I wrote it down. And then I worked myself through this activity of fact-checking. For me, that was a game changer. After a period of time, those anxious thoughts didn't have such a hold over me anymore, and I could start to see a reality that was worth reinvesting in. That is so empowering. I'll share with you something that is not in public. I write five books at the same time. 
I don't want to turn it into a job. And I know that makes all of them late, but I'm enjoying it. So I'm writing one that's called Understanding Fate. And as an engineer, I sort of fact check myself. So I was like, what's the impact of luck on that whole idea of fate? So I ran a very unusual experiment. I said, I'm going to be looking for US dollar cents, you know, the bronze ones. Yeah. Within one week, I found 137 of them. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And I found them, I'm not exaggerating. I found them on pavements in India and in Dubai. What? US dollar cents, not another coin. I was not looking for coins, right? And the idea was once I started to tell myself, yes, I will find them, I started to look for them. And when I started to look for them, I found them. Wow. So I went back and I decided stupid to look for cents. I should probably look for jewelry. Okay. I mean, it's a no brainer. So I actually did that. I started to look for jewelry and accessory and I found like seven pieces in like the 12 days or something like that. But one of them was on a pavement, if I remember correctly, on Grand Street, which was very, very busy, right? I don't even know if it's genuine or not. I still have it. It looked like a diamond ring. It was in the middle of the pavement. And so instead of picking it up, I stood next to it and watched at 70 people passed by and no one saw it. Wow. But I was looking for those things, so I found them. And, and so what I told myself is there must be jewelry on the streets of New York. And because I told myself that, I could find it. And it's really interesting because what you're saying is this is backed up by research that what we tell ourselves helps us to find alternative paths. That if we fact check what we tell ourselves and turn it positive, that we will end up being positive. That's really, really, really interesting. What about telling others? Sean always says to me, what you attend to becomes your reality. And this is what you just shared is a perfect example of that. What you pay attention to is what you see. And then that's the reality that you create. He always gives this example that he decided one day that he wanted to be good for the environment and he was going to buy a Prius. This is years and years ago. Is he not anymore? Does he now have like a massive truck? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) But anyway, so he said he'd never really paid attention to Prius before, but he had heard about them. Anyway, he said after that, he would walk outside, he would see Prius everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. And it's because he decided and paid attention. Absolutely. Your brain looks for it. So what about telling others? So, you know, what we tell ourselves make a massive difference. The part I love most about your work, it's a very, very integral part to One Billion Happy. And the idea of One Billion Happy is I can't make a billion people happy, but if hopefully a million of the people I reach make a billion people happy, it works. So that idea of others broadcasting that message of happiness, how does that work? Well, I think that if you want to be surrounded by positive people and you want a happier existence, then the best thing is to put it out there yourself. It's much easier to choose happiness yourself when the people around you are more positive. If you do not give them opportunities to kvetch and complain and all this stuff because your broadcast to them is is more positive, it naturally weeds out some people and it shifts conversations with others. I often do get people coming up to me after talks at companies that I give and that people will say, oftentimes it's women, but they'll say, I'm the really positive one in the marriage and then there's my husband. <laughs> yeah. 
But I wish I could study them for four decades of a marriage and see, I have to think that this person who is continually not only more positive themselves, but also expressing that mindset on a regular basis to their partner is going to have a positive lasting effect on the other person. We can change at any time, right? So there's this great studies that on grumpy old gentlemen pessimists, they recruited 60 and 70 year old men. The researchers had these men do gratitudes where they did three new and unique things they were grateful for each day for a period of time. After 14 days, these guys that were testing as moderate level pessimists, they started testing as low level optimists. After six months, they started testing as moderate level optimists, right? So, and I think the same thing works with if someone is in our space and presenting this other version of reality to us, it has that positive effect as well. The challenge is that a lot of times people are internally positive. They're just not expressive of their mindset. We did a study at companies and we found, this is cross industry, that 31% of people at a given organization might be optimistic, but they're not expressive of that mindset. So think about it in a meeting room, when someone presents an idea, you've got the guys who are saying the negative stuff and you have the people who are a couple of people who might say positive reactions to the idea. But what about all those people who are feeling positive, but they don't speak up? If those people can speak up, I think they can tip that meeting room or that office or the family at the dinner table in a more positive direction. I think there was a study in Stanford that basically said we respect people who are negative a lot more than people who are positive. So if someone finds the wrong issues with a presentation and picks out the two typos and the one number that is wrong, we think of them as, wow, this is such a, an intelligent person because they saw the negative. While if others look at the presentation and say, wow, that was great, by the way, I loved every part of it, we go like, ah, they're not that smart, right? They, they don't, don't get it. They're not they, that smart. Yeah, they didn't see what was wrong. So I agree with you 100% that there are so many of us who want to be optimistic about life, but are sort of hiding there. They don't want to share it with others. They don't want to see, tell it to others because, you know, if you walk around the company corridors and say, hey, by the way, I'm, I'm really, really happy and optimistic, they'll go like, are we paying them too much? Maybe we should figure out something here. But I also think that the ones that show optimism are actually not genuinely optimistic. So you get a lot of times, you get that response of how are you doing? And someone will just pull themselves together and say, I'm doing great. Everything's absolutely fine. But they actually don't really mean it. And you did a bit of, I don't recall the exact numbers. I hope you, you have them off on top of your head. You did a study where you tried to measure who's more impactful, the pessimists in the room or the optimists in the room. But then you found out that the more impactful people were generally the people that expressed themselves with more passion. Did you recall that? Yeah. So I always get people after talks asking me, so who's more powerful? Is it the positive person or the negative person when it comes to creating culture in our offices or around the dinner table? So I scoured the research and what I found is it's actually, it's not the most positive person, but it's not the most negative person either. It's that person who's most expressive of their mindset. They have that drumbeat. The unfortunate thing is what you were saying earlier is that the negative person is oftentimes more expressive because sometimes they're also more anxious or they feel more substantiated in what they're saying. And we don't get to hear as much from positive people in our lives. So think about how many times we've had a success in our life. So let's say our child was struggling in math class and then all of a sudden got an A on 
a test after a lot of hard work. I say, let's not just celebrate this once. Let's celebrate this a bunch of times in a bunch of different ways. That's an example, a very practical way to be more expressive of a positive event or your positive mindset. Keep bringing it back to the good things. Or Monday morning when you're colleague asks you, hey, how are you doing? Instead of defaulting to either a fake, I'm doing great, or I'm fine, dig deep and find something good that happened over the weekend. And it doesn't have to be rah-rah, happy, high level of energy answer. It can just be, I'm doing great. I had breakfast with my son this morning. He's being so funny, right? Like that's my answer. If I'm home and I had fun around the breakfast table, it's something so simple and you can say it in a very authentic way. And then the fun experiment is then see what people then respond with because if you don't want them to be negative and you start off with something positive, they have very little place to go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the opposite is also true. Right? If you start with something negative, people will just build on it. If you go like, I'm so stressed with the quarantine and I'm locked down and people will just give you, oh yeah, and you know, I ran out of toilet paper and it was a horrendous experience and you know, this is what the politicians are doing and they'll just build on it. So you're sort of almost setting yourself up for five minutes of misery every time you, you broadcast negativity, right? You're asking for it. Yeah, we call it misery poker. You know, <laughs> yeah. the amount of misery you have in your life, just start off with yours and you'll get a whole bunch from other exactly, people. Exactly, yeah, people will generously offer you their misery. How about the opposite? Again, I've never seen you not optimistic. You must have had difficult days. How would you answer on a difficult day? Yeah, I have my down days still. And then I just try to, first of all, recognize it's hopefully going to be short-lived. We go through moods and sometimes we fight so hard against the bad stuff. If we just chill out and recognize it's just a period of our life, then that also allows us to have those resources then, I think, to invest in the good stuff. So I do what I need to do to get back to a good place, whether it's doing some of the positive habits like journaling or writing a nice note to somebody, calling a friend, telling Sean, and the first thing he always does is, why don't you go out and exercise? So yeah, and I think my favorite is doing something nice for somebody else because in that moment where you're focusing on creating happiness for somebody else, you can't focus on how unhappy you might be. I love this. How do you broadcast it? Do you answer someone and say, I'm not having a great day? Yeah, I think you can absolutely talk to friends and share that. When I try to make this really practical and something that people can do on a regular basis, my audiences oftentimes are folks that work at companies. I'll say, if you want to broadcast happiness and you want to do something nice for someone, write a positive note. This is you write a two-minute positive email praising or thanking somebody in your social support network. Wonderful Tell them habits. why yeah. they've been meaningful to you. Tell them something nice that they've done recently. And in that moment, you're brightening their day. You might get a nice note in return. Absolutely. Really yeah. Wonderful. Absolutely. And yeah. then you're also getting out of your own head about your own. Yeah. How many times did you send someone a message saying, I'm so grateful for what you did. I think you're a wonderful person. And they wrote back and said, F off, I hate you. Right? Like they, yeah. <laughs> People don't do that. If you just say something nice, you're probably likely are going to get something nice back. We're heading to the end of our time. I so adore talking to you. I think there has been so many messages out there, but I normally try to summarize three. I love, love the gratitude jar the visible crumbled balls of paper of gratitude. I 
love that idea. I'm really doing it right now. I really loved how you spoke about fact checking. And, you know, maybe it appeals to my engineering mind and the idea of like, seriously, brain, let's, if you give me one negative thing, you owe me one positive thing. At least if we assume that the glass is half full and half empty, then for every negative that you give me, you need to give me a positive one. And those facts, when you see them that way, they make a massive, massive difference. I love the idea of broadcasting happiness. I love the book. I love your work. I think I'm asking everyone who's listening to us to just, just go out there and make others happy by broadcasting your optimism, your positivity, your good messages, because it changes the world. Believe me, if one of us is meeting 20 people a day and you brighten their day with a positive comment or a, a smile or a positive contribution of some sort, imagine how far we can go, especially if they too go ahead and pay it forward and take that further. I think it's brilliant in its simplicity, but it would change our world. I will stop. Any closing remarks? You wonderful person. Oh, I adore you. You're just wonderful. I would just say if anyone's interested, we have created some really fun assessments. One is called the Stress Responder Scale. One's called the Success Scale. I posted them. They're freely available on my website, michellegeelan.com. Go test yourself. I love that kind of stuff. That's why I made it. The geek in you is never going to disappear, is she? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and yeah, I love what you said. I think that about brightening somebody else's day, it's so fun to watch the ripple effect that can have. And then to see how powerful you are. It's a beautiful reminder of how powerful each of us is in this world to make a positive difference. You're the best. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for being here. Mega hug for Sean and stay happy. And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for Mo Gaudet, Slow Mo, Soul for Happy, or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.